0: are persecuted for righteousness because theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account rejoice and be glad for your reward will be great in heaven well good morning, good morning. it is it's been a, it's been a long time it feels like forever there's so many i was saying as i was standing out the door there's just so many new faces at this campus that I've never had the chance to meet, and so it's so good to be here with you. I'm honored to be able to continue our series, we said, "End our series, but really, we're just going through the first chapter. We're going to jump back into this in, in February, jumping back into the Sermon on the Mount. How many of you have enjoyed going through this sermon uh, verse by verse? I, I, I don't know about you, but I love when we can take time to really dig into God's Word and really understand what God is speaking to us through His Word, and that's exactly what we've been doing. We're going to be finishing up chapter 5 Today, If you haven't been here, we've been looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And we've been calling this sermon series Upside Down. And the reason we're calling it that is because when you look at this sermon that Jesus preached, what you'll understand is he constantly talks about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and and who we are and who we should live like as followers of Christ, as citizens of this kingdom of heaven. And what we're discovering and what we'll continue to discover is that it's an upside down type of kingdom. It's a kingdom that is not like the kingdoms of this world. And we as citizens of the kingdom of heaven should be living lives that are quite different from the people of this world. How many of you would agree that our lives should look a little bit different than the, the lives? Yeah, amen, right? Like we should be living lives that are different. And so Jesus has been showing us through this sermon, what does that look like? And over the last few weeks, we've been, we've been at a, a section of chapter 5 where Jesus clarifies or, or kind of redefines the law. He takes us through these six different phrases, six different you have heard phrases, and he clarifies the intent and the reason behind the law. And the reason he does that is because he says right before that, that if you're going to get into the kingdom of heaven, that your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the people that other people thought were the most righteous of all. He says you need to have a righteousness that goes above and beyond them. Why? Because the Pharisees were all about the outward. They were all about the outward actions. They looked good on the outside, but Jesus refers to them as whitewashed tombs. They are full of, of, they look good on the outside, whitewashed and clean on the outside, but inside they are full of death and all kinds of impurity. And he says your righteousness needs to exceed them. In other words, it can't just be an outward righteousness, it has to be an inward transformation. And so what Jesus does in this section is he takes these six different phrases and he shows the heart behind it. Not just the, not just the outward action, but the attitude of the heart behind those things. And so he starts by talking about murder. If it was simple that all we had to do was just go through life and simply not kill anybody, how many of you we would be good at following the rules? I wanted to kill some people, but I have never done it. So we're good. But what he says is, if we have anger in our hearts, that we don't walk through, that we don't work through, if we have unforgiveness and bitterness in our heart, we have hatred in our heart towards people, that's the, the heart and the attitude behind the, the command of "Do not murder." And he says if we simply go through life and don't kill anybody, but we constantly hate people, we murder them with our attitude of our heart, we're just as guilty of breaking the law as somebody who actually murders somebody, so we need to get control of our anger. We talked about adultery and divorce and how the law is not simply about not committing adultery, that way before it's lived out in the act of adultery. We, we commit adultery in our minds. That's why it's so important that we learn to protect our, our minds. We guard our eyes from what we see. We don't allow things that should not be there to come into our mind. We don't allow them there because adultery begins there. And we talked about at our campus, I don't know about here, but we talked about marriage and how God wants us to have great marriages. How many of you understand that God wants you to have a marriage that honors him? If you're married, God wants you to have a great marriage. That, that relationship that you have with your spouse is supposed to be the one relationship that most closely resembles the intimacy that God wants you to experience with him. Right? This is the, it's the one relationship where, where you're supposed to be known completely and you're supposed to know that person completely as well. And so the enemy is constantly trying to attack our marriages because our marriages are supposed to be pointing people to Jesus, the hope of the gospel. We want to do everything we can to divorce-proof our marriages. Not to condemn those of you who are here that have been divorced, but if you are married now, man, God wants your marriage to last. He wants your marriage to to work. He wants you to have a great God-honoring marriage. So that's the type of marriages we should be pursuing. Last week, we talked about truth and how as followers of Christ, we should be people who speak the truth. The Pharisees had a way of, of saying things and using certain words to get out of actually doing what they said. It was this, you know, this, this jumbled up kind of words that they would use, that they would, they would say. It sounded really good, sounded really holy, but they had no intention of doing what they said. And as far as of Christ, we shouldn't be people that do that. We should be people who, who do what we say and say what we mean. If we make promises, we should fulfill them. We shouldn't constantly be going back. We need to be people of integrity. And this week, Jesus is going to show us the two final ones. And he's going to talk about love. And I, I don't know about you, but how many of you would agree that the world we live in is pretty divisive. Like, you don't have to look far, just think about the last two years. If the last two years has taught us anything, it's that we're really, really good at hating each other. We're really, really good at allowing our, 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 our opinions to divide us. We're really, really good at, at dehumanizing each other, and, and finding ways to look down and being divided. We're really, really good. How, how many of you understand that social media has pointed that out in like, made that completely obvious it doesn't take long you go on social media you share your opinion somebody else shares an opinion that's different than you you have a social media fight you you defriend them because that's what you do right like i'm gonna get ready i'm gonna I'm stop following you i don't like your opinions we're really really good at allowing ourselves to be divided really good at doing that but here's the thing as followers of christ our lives should not be known by the things that we are against as much as they should be known by the things that we are for That's just the truth. If you're a follower of Christ, then the way you live, the way you act on social media, the way you treat people that have different opinions, then you should look drastically different than somebody who doesn't know Jesus. And and the, the one thing that should be seen in our lives, the one predominant characteristic that should be seen in our lives, more than anything else, is the characteristic of love. As followers of Christ, citizens of God's kingdom, Everything we do should come from a place of real, Christ-like agape love. In John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus said it like this. He says, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. He doesn't say your, your holiness will prove to the world that you're my disciples. He doesn't say your, your knowledge of the Bible will and how many scriptures you can memorize will prove to the world that you're my disciples, although both of those things are really, really important. He says you're love. Why? Because you can fake holiness. You can appear holy on the outside. You can appear like you follow the rules on the outside, but inwardly you're not transformed. Why? But the Pharisees were all about that. He says love is hard to fake. Like really loving somebody and loving them like Jesus, it's hard to fake that. And so what does this look like to love people in this way? What does it look like to live this out? In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, it says it like this, verse 1 through 3, it says, If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but I didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body that I could boast about it, but I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. In other words, you can be the most spiritual person on the outside, you can have faith that can move mountains, you can memorize scripture, do all these other spiritual things, you can even serve and give and sacrifice your life for others, but if it's not all motivated by a love for God and a love for other people, all of it is pointless. It doesn't matter because love is the most important thing. Jesus clarified this. When he said this in Matthew chapter 22, often referred to as the great commandment, he says, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind, which is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. This is the clip note version of the entire Bible. Love God with everything you are. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you work on these two, you pursue these two, you make these two the greatest desires of your heart, then everything else that the Bible has to say you can live out. All the other things the Bible commands you, you can live out if you live out this command of love. So as we look at this portion of chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount today, we're going to see Jesus describing and giving us examples of how this can be practically lived out. How we can practically live out this command of love. And so I want to break this down into two parts this morning. I want to first talk about how we are called to love people. And then I want to talk about who we are called to love. And so with that in mind, let's look at Matthew chapter 5, 38 through 42. Starts by saying this. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now. Before we move on to what Jesus clarifies there, this is taken from the Old Testament law. It's found in Exodus chapter 21, 24 through 25 and it was put into place given by God to help them when it came to their disagreements. How many of you, if you have a relationship with people, you understand that there is times in life that you don't see eye to eye? How many of you are married? If you have a marriage where you've never argued? you are Jesus. I don't know what to tell you. You are a special kind of person because I don't know about you, but marriage often brings out your worst side. So he gives these, these rules to, to fix relationships when they're broken because inevitably relationships are going to be hurt at times and we need to work through those things. So he gives them this civil law. Number one, he gave it to them because the people of Israel were made to be a set apart nation. They were called by God to be different than the nations around them, the nations of the world. And so God says, here's how you're going to work through your disagreements. And it was particularly made to be the judicial law, the way that the judges would work out the law. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, so to speak. And and the idea behind it was the punishment should fit the crime. That was the idea behind this law, that the punishment should fit the crime. And, And really, it was about limiting punishment, it was about limiting the amount of punishment that, that could be given to somebody for the crime that they would do. It had to be equal to the crime. It couldn't go above and beyond the crime. Why did God give a rule like that for us to follow? Because our human nature is to not just get even but to go above and beyond what was done to us. Right? It's like our human nature. If somebody hurts us, we want to hurt them more. Somebody steals from us, we want to take it back, plus more. If somebody hurts us, that's our, our human nature, our fleshly response. And so he says, Here's the rule, make sure that the punishment fits the crime. But the other thing about this we have to understand is this this rule, this law, was given specifically for the courts, specifically for their judicial system. It was never meant to be how do we seek revenge on a personal level, and that's what the Pharisees did. They took this law, and they began to apply it to personal relationships. An eye for an eye. That's how you respond. A tooth for a tooth. If somebody takes from you, you take back from them. You get even with them. They used it as a way to seek revenge, and that was never God's intention with this law. He goes on to say in verse 39, in explaining the law, he says, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus gives us four examples, illustrations here about how we should love people, how we should treat people, even people that have been hurtful to us, what are things that we should do to love them. And the first thing he talks about is turning the other cheek. And really the idea that that Jesus is teaching when it comes to turning the other cheek is that we need to be people who don't retaliate or seek revenge. Now, I want to be very, very clear that what Jesus is not talking about here. He's not talking about physical abuse. He's not talking about if you're in an abusive relationship with somebody, you need to continually stay in that abusive relationship. He's not saying that. He's not talking about being a doormat at all times for other people. He's not talking about uh, saying that if somebody breaks into your house and and tries to, to hurt your family or steal something from you, that you just need to let them go and you need to let them hurt your family and you need to just turn the other cheek. Here's, oh, you're hurting my one kid. Well, here's my other kid to hurt as well. That's not what he's saying, and sometimes this these verses have been misinterpreted to teach that again it's not about a personal level in in fact I don't think Jesus is actually talking about a physical type of assault at all because he specifically talks about the right cheek and that's important because at that time like like today most people were right-handed how many of you in this room raise your hand if you're right-handed I look around for a moment raise your hand if you're left-handed okay many less people And the same is true then, predominantly people were right-handed, and so how would you slap somebody on the right cheek if you're right-handed? Can somebody come up here? I'm going to illustrate. Just kidding. If you were to slap somebody with your right hand and you were to slap them on the right cheek, like, they would have to turn a certain way or you would have to do what? You would have to slap them with the back of your hand. It was a backhanded slap. Or you would have to slap them with your other hand, which was the hand that was used for wiping. Okay, so you either used your wiping hand or you would use your backhand. Both of those would be the ultimate sign of disrespect. He's not talking about a physical slap as much as he's talking about when we are disrespected. When somebody looks down on us, when somebody treats us as less than, than human, when, when somebody says something that is just breaking down on our spirit. In fact, that's where we get the, the phrase, right? Well, that what, what, what you said was just a slap in the face. How many of you ever heard somebody say that? Man, what they said, the way I heard the gossip that they said about me, I heard what they said, it just was a real slap in the face. We get that saying from this. It was a slap in the face because it was a backhanded comment. What do you do when somebody says something like that to you? I don't know about you, but my first response is, if you're quick-witted, you understand this, right? My first response is often to say something back. And it's not, I know you are, but what am I? Like, that's not, that's not creative, right? We'll say something back, we'll try to get even, and what Jesus is instructing us here is when somebody says something about you, when they give you that backhanded comment, when they speak down on you, when they belittle you, when they treat you as less than, when, when what they say feels like that real slap in the face, what do you do? How do you respond? You respond like Jesus, you choose not to respond, you choose not to retaliate, you simply turn the other cheek and allow them to criticize you again if that's what it takes. You take away their power of their words by saying, it doesn't bother me. You want to say that about me? You want to hurt me in that way? All right, here's the other cheek. Say something again. Because your words don't have any power in my life. I'm not defined by your opinions. I'm defined by God's opinions. I don't live through your appro- approval. I'm defined by God's approval. So what you say does not matter. I'm rubber, you're glue, whatever you say, sticks, uh, bounces off of me and sticks on you, right? You say, whatever we said when we were kids is the playground. We live like Jesus. We respond like Jesus. And the Bible says in 1 Peter 2.21 about Jesus, it says, For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He could have retaliated. He could have said something back but instead he trusted God. He trusted that God was the one who would judge and he did not have to take it into his own hands. Essentially what he did is he gave up his right to retaliate. He gave up his right to revenge. And can I tell you, as far as of Christ, loving like Jesus sometimes means giving up our right to revenge, giving up our right to retaliate, giving up our right to get even with our words. The second thing he talks about, the second example he gives, is he talks about giving your your cloak or your coat and the idea that I think Jesus is trying to teach us here as followers of Christ is that we need to be people who are constantly pursuing reconciliation. Now, this one's a little bit more confusing for us because uh, it's not something that we see or that we hear about, often, but it would have been more understood for the people at that time because um, it was something more common. Now, first, I want you to understand what Jesus is saying here. He says if somebody sues you for your coat or your cloak, right? If somebody sues you for your, for your shirt, It's not implying that somebody was getting robbed. It's not implied that you were walking along and somebody stole something that was yours. It's implying that there is something that happened, that there was something that you owed somebody, and you weren't able to pay that, and so they are taking you to court, and they are taking you for your, the shirt off your back, essentially, yeah. How poor do you have to be? For them at the time, that, that, that shirt, that was like Long John underwear. That was their undergarment. How poor do you have to be that somebody needs to sue you for your underwear? That is essentially what is going on in this moment. He says, if you, if you are taken to court by somebody who has a problem with you, and they're suing you for your, for your undergarments, It's what's taking place. Now another thing about this we have to understand is that in Israelites' rights, their coat was their rights. They could be sued and and have to give up that undershirt, that undergarment, but they weren't technically, there was no law for them to be able to be sued and to sue and take somebody's coat. It was actually outlawed. And, And you see this in Exodus 22, it says, if you lend money to any of my people who are in need, do not charge interest as a money lender would. And if you take your neighbor's cloak as a security for a loan, you must return it before sunset." This coat may be the only blanket your neighbor has. How can a person sleep without it? If you do not return it and your neighbor cries out to me for help, I will hear, for I am merciful. In other words, even if it was given as an agreement, I'll give you my coat, right? I'll give you my coat. You were required to give that coat back before the end of the night because the coat could be used for shelter. It could be used as a blanket. It might be the only thing they have to keep warm. And so you weren't allowed to require that from somebody to settle debts. What Jesus is saying here is extraordinary. He says, if you're sued, and, you, and somebody has something against you, and they're trying to make it right, and they take your undergarments, they take that offer your outer coat as well, go above and beyond what they are requiring of you to fix what has been broken. Make it right. Do whatever you have to do to pursue reconciliation. This is how we should be living our lives as followers as of Christ. We should be people who are ministers of reconciliation. The Bible says that we have been reconciled to God through Christ. And he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. First, our lives should be all about people being reconciled to God. That should be our life's goal. That we help people experience that reconciliation between them and God. The, the brokenness that is there because of sin. But also, we should be pursuing reconciliation where relationships are broken. We should be people who don't hold on to unforgiveness, who don't hold on to bitterness, but if there's a like, we talked about this a little bit ago, since even if you're going to the altar and you're going to worship and you realize that somebody has something against you, doesn't say if you realize that you've, that you have something against somebody else, because we're good at knowing when somebody's ticked us off. We hold on to that real easily. We're good when somebody's offended us. He says if you know somebody has something against you, if you know that your neighbor's mad at you. First, before you give your offering, before you worship, go get and make it right. Go seek forgiveness. Go seek reconciliation. Make the relationship right, because having right relationships is more important than giving God worship at the altar. In fact, it's impossible to worship God with the right heart when you're constantly living in broken relationships, when you're constantly holding on to unforgiveness and bitterness. We need to be people who pursue reconciliation. Zacchaeus, in the New Testament, he's a great example of somebody who lived this out when, when Jesus changed his life, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He had lived his life ripping people off and getting rich off of his fellow Jewish people. And when Jesus transformed his life, this was his, his outer response to what Jesus has done. In Luke 19, verse 8, it says, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and he said, I will give half of my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Not only am I going to give them back what I stole from them, I'm going to give them above and beyond. My, my shirt represents what I stole from them. My coat, my cloak represents four times more than I've stolen from them. I want to do everything possible to make this relationship right. We need to be people like Jesus who pursue reconciliation. Not when people deserve it. Not when it's easy. Not when we feel like we have the right to hold on to our anger. You don't know what they did to me. You don't know how they treated me. I'm going to hold on to that unforgiveness. He says, no, no, no. You don't have that right anymore. As a follower of Christ, we need to be people who do everything possible to fix the broken relationships that we've, we've been a part of. The third thing he talks about, he gives an example of going two miles. I think the lesson that Jesus wants us to understand from this is that we need to serve more than is required. This is where we get that phrase, right? You just got to go the extra mile. You're a person who goes the extra mile. This is where that phrase comes from. And at the time that Jesus was speaking these words, the the people of Israel were under Roman occupation. And one of the things, because of that Roman occupation, one of the things that the Roman soldiers could do is they could go up to any uh, Jewish person at any time and they could ask them, require them to carry their their pack, their luggage, so to speak, their, their possessions, and a Jewish person who was under that rule had no say. They could do nothing to, to say no. It doesn't matter how busy they were. It doesn't matter if they had their kids with them and they were on their way to the market and it wasn't really a good time for that. It doesn't matter what was good. It could have been a rainy day. It could have been a snowy day. It could have been terrible weather. If a Roman soldier came up and said, I want you to carry my pack for, this, for a mile, this was what they were legally at, allowed to ask for you to carry it for up to a mile. And so they had to do it. And so the Jewish people, they hated this. Can you imagine how inconvenient it would be? Can you imagine how you would try to avoid even making eye contact with people because you know at any moment they could ask you to do something that was going to completely inconvenience your life, that was going to be terrible, that you were going to hold a grudge against them. You already hate the fact that they occupy your land. You already hate the fact that they're taking all of your money and taxes and now you've got to carry their stuff for them up to a mile. What Jesus is saying here again is super profound. He says, yes, carry their stuff for a mile because that is what requ- what's required for you. But instead of being like every other person who carries their stuff for a mile and puts it down and gives them a mean look and walks away with hatred in their heart towards them, carry it the first mile and then look back at them and be like, I got you another mile, and walk another mile with them carrying their stuff. Do the first mile out of obligation, do the second mile out of love. Come on, how many of you understand that's not easy? That's not easy. See, some of us when it comes to serving, we 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 have the mentality and mindset, we just do the bare minimum. I can't really serve, it's inconvenient. You ever seen my schedule? I gotta get home at a certain time. I gotta get my lazy boy, recliner is calling me, football is gonna be on at a certain time. It's just I, I don't have time for that right now. I don't have time to give. It's just a little bit of an inconvenience that, or I'll serve, but when we do, we're like, all right. This is the days I serve. This is the only time I serve. This is how I give. I'm not going above. This is the threshold of serving that I'm going to do. Anything above that, I'm never going to say yes to because here we do the bare minimum that we feel like we can get away. We don't have a heart of serving. It's just an obligation. What he says is serving is not just about obligation. It's about a a love in our heart, a love for other people. And so to love other people and to serve them like Jesus means there's going to be times that we serve more than is required. There's going to be times that serving other people might inconvenience us. You might be on the way to the store and you might see somebody's car broken down and you might have to stop even though you're in a hurry and you have something else to do, you might have to stop and ask them, hey, can I help you? Is there something I can do? It's going to be an inconvenience to you in that, in that moment. But we're called to serve more than just required, not do the bare minimum. And that's what Jesus is teaching us when he talks about carrying the second mile. And then the last example of love that he gives is he talks about giving. And the idea I think he wants us to understand is that we're called to, to be sacrificially generous people. We talk about that as one of our, our core values at Morningstar. And, and I think we do a pretty good job at times of living this one out. When we think about One Day to Feed the World and all those other offerings, and, and, and there's times where we really, really do a great job of being sacrificially generous people. But what he's saying is that we need to be generous all the time. We need to be generous in every area of our lives. This is when you're giving, make sure you give to those who have needs. Or, or when you loan to people who want to borrow, make sure you, you give to them without charging interest. And the idea is that instead of selfishly hoarding all of the things that we feel like are ours, this is my money, this is my stuff, we begin to look at it from a different perspective. We're willing to give to those who have genuine needs. Now, again, I want you to understand, he's not saying that we should be careless with our resources. The scripture always reinterprets other scripture. He talks in scripture about being a good steward of what he's given us. That doesn't mean that every time somebody asks us for something, we say, yes, here it is, here's all my money, here's everything I have. We still have a responsibility to take care of our families, we still have a responsibility to be, to be generous and, and to be obedient with our finances. God, he's not saying that we should just give everything that people ask to us. Give me $100, okay, here's $100, give me $1,000, okay, here's $1,000. He's not telling us to do that. There's times where we need to be wise with what we have. There's times where, where, where what we do is we just be enabling somebody who, who refuses to work or enabling somebody who has been foolish with their money and it's not actually going to do anything to change the issue. But what happens a lot of times in our lives is our default answer is no. Right? Our default to, to when somebody has a need is no. And we justify it and we make all those excuses in our mind. Well, you're probably going to use it to buy alcohol. Or I, I, I don't, you, probably, you probably deserve what you have here. We, we have all these kind of thoughts in our minds or people. And what he's saying here is that the default of our heart shouldn't be no. The default of our heart should be yes. Understanding that God is a generous God. That he is a God who pours out generously on our lives, and if we're going to live and follow him and, and live like Jesus and love like Jesus, then we need to be people who have open hearts and open hands when it comes to his resources. We'll begin to live like him when we begin to look at what God has given us, not through the eyes of ownership, it's mine. This is my money. i worked hard for these things. Instead of looking at it through that perspective, we begin to look at it through the eyes. This is God's. Everything I have is God. The fact that I have a job and I can provide resources for my family is a gift from God. Everything is His. So God, how do you want to use what you have entrusted me with to bring you glory? That should be our heart's desires. He's saying we need to live generous lives. There's a common theme I think we can see through all four of these examples that Jesus gives us. And, and that's this. If we're going to love like Jesus... It's going to require in our lives that we learn to be a lot less selfish. To love like Jesus is going to require at times that we're a lot less self centered and self focused. To love like Jesus means at times we're going to have to put aside our rights, which I know as Americans that's hard to hear. We're all about our rights, aren't we? We fight for our rights. And listen. I'm not saying that we shouldn't enjoy the rights that we have, that we shouldn't fight for the rights that we have. But what I am saying is that there are times when we willingly choose to put aside our rights for God's glory. There are times that that loving like Jesus means putting aside our rights for the benefit of somebody else. Jesus was our ultimate example of this. In Philippians chapter 2, it says this, verse 3 through 8, it says, don't be selfish, don't try to impress others, be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves, don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to, instead he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and he died a criminal's death on the cross. Jesus willingly chose to put aside his rights to let go of his divine privileges, to humbly come as a, a little baby, not born in a, a mansion, not born in a, in a castle, but to be born in a, a manger. Christmas is the, is the greatest showing of love that we ever see. When we see that, we realize and we remember what Jesus willingly did, what he put aside and came to do for us, to humbly serve us and love us. And if we're going to follow him, we got to live like that. Can I remind you, and, and, and please don't take this the wrong way, but... But before we are citizens of America, if we're fathers of Christ, we're citizens of heaven. And that, that citizenship overrules our American citizenship, every time. Every time. So anytime there's opportunity for us to represent our ultimate king and our ultimate authority by choosing to love the way he loves, by choosing to put aside our rights, well it's my right to get even with my words, well not if you're a father of Christ. It's my right to hold on to my stuff. It's my right. You don't know what they did to me. You don't know how they've hurt me. You don't know. No, no, no. If you're a follower of Christ, it's no longer your right to hold on to unforgiveness. He says to forgive as you've been forgiven. And every single one of us have been forgiven more than we deserve. So we can't hold on to unforgiveness. Well, Well, it's my right. It's my time. It's my life. It's my right to use my time as I see fit. And Jesus says, no, serving me, following me means sometimes putting aside your rights to serve others. It's my right, my possessions, it's my right, these are my things. Now, if you follow Jesus, everything belongs to Him. And you've been given stewardship over it to use well for His kingdom. Loving like Jesus often involves putting aside our rights for God's glory, ultimately hoping that people would find Jesus. I mean, that is the ultimate desire of sacrificing our rights at times, is that people would see the way that we love, and it would draw them not to ourselves, but to Jesus. Which is where Jesus goes on to say, he gives us these examples of of how we should love others. And these are not easy examples. They're they're not easy. They're easy to hear. They're definitely not easy to put into practice. They might not even be easy to hear. But he gives us examples of this type of love. And and now as we look at the rest of chapter 5, really quickly, he's going to show us not only how we love, but who we should love like this. And so he goes on to say in Matthew chapter 5. 43 through 48, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now this teaching of the Pharisees was a complete, was a complete misconstruing of what God said. Nowhere in the Old Testament are people told to hate their enemies. Nowhere are they commanded to hate their enemies, but what the Pharisees did was, okay, you're supposed to love your neighbor, which then means if you love your neighbor, you're supposed to hate your enemy, hate people who are not like you, and so they would do is they would say, okay. Fellow Jewish people are my neighbor. Fellow people who are like me aren't my neighbor. Fellow people who vote like me aren't my neighbor. Fellow people who are just like me are my neighbor, but I don't have to love those other people that are not like me. And they would teach that. And so what does Jesus say? He says, no, I tell you, you're not supposed to hate your enemy. You're supposed to love your enemies. You're supposed to pray for those who persecute you. So that they may be children, so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I I always find this verse fascinating. Even if we have not, even people who do not know Jesus, if, if those of us who know Jesus, we've experienced God's saving grace in our lives. Unmerited favor, given what we do not deserve. I hope you understand that. You didn't wake up one day and go, you know what? I think I've earned my way to God today. i I follow the rules really good. I'm not as bad as that person. I haven't murdered anybody. I'm really good at following the rules. I think God loves me. He's going to give me a star on my chart. I'm worthy of his love today. Look at me. No, no, no. There's nothing you could do, nothing I could do. If anything, when we look at these commandments and we look at these last few weeks and we talk about all the different ways it really looks like to live out these righteous things, it should show us really, really what it should show us is our inadequacy to truly get to God on our own. There's nothing we can do to earn God's love. That's what's so great and amazing about his grace. But even those who have never experienced his saving grace have experienced his grace in their lives, his common grace. What does he say? He says it causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. He doesn't just look at the people who are worthy of rain and say, you know what, you get some rain so that your gardens can grow, but your neighbor, I'm going to make sure they're bad, they don't get rain for their garden. You know what, you need warmth, I'm going to make sure you have the sunshine, but your neighbor, I'm going to make sure he lives under a cloud in complete darkness. No, every single person in this earth has experienced God's common grace in one way or another. They've experienced God's goodness and undeserved favor in one way or another. He says the same way that God loves people who are his enemies because of sin, the same way that God loves people who will never respond to his goodness, will never respond to his forgiveness. He says you should love like that. Be children of your Father in heaven. He says for if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. Verse 48, he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We're called to love and to serve the ways that we just talked about. Putting aside our rights for other people, we're called to do that, not just to those we love. We're called to love like that to everyone, the Bible says, including our enemies, It's easy for us to love people who will love us back. It's easy for us to love people who will reciprocate that love. It's a lot harder to love the ways that Jesus taught us to love people who we know will never love us back. People who we know will continue to take advantage of us with their words. People who we know will continue to take us to court. People who we know will never reciprocate that love, or we feel like we will never reciprocate that love, but he doesn't give us an option there and say, okay, you don't have to love them if they're going to continue to treat you that way. You don't have to love them if they're going to continue to hold on to things that way. No, he says you still need to love them. Love even your enemies. Who is that in our lives? Who is that in your life? Who is that person that maybe you feel like is an enemy? Is that person that you work with that's not a Christian, who's outspoken in their opposition to Christianity, who's outspoken in their opposition to you as a Christian, constantly telling you you're stupid for believing in God, it's just a fairy tale. How many of you have ever been around a person like that? And they're constantly tearing you down, constantly making you feel less than. It's called to love that person. The person who holds a opposing political view, a different ideological view, Means if you're pro-mask and you, you have to love people who are anti-mask. Means if you're pro-vaccine, you have to love people who are anti-vaccine, and vice versa. Means if you're a Republican, you're called to love Democrats. See, we're really, really good at skirting this, this, this rule, these laws, these, this desires by God when it doesn't fit our agenda, because we're good at loving people who we like. We're not really good at loving people who are different than us at times, but that's who we're called to love. It's that person who seems arrogant and careless and, and foolish It's that person who cut you off in traffic and then gave you the number one finger and you want to drive past them and get in front of them and you want to return the favor twofold you don't do that you love them still you don't pray that they would get into an accident some of us are like i prayed for them i prayed that they would crash I teach them prayed that a cop would pull them over that's not what it means when it says to pray for them just in case you were wondering It says pray for God to bless them. Come on, how many of you have ever done that? How many of you have ever thought about that person that's your enemy, that you feel like is your enemy, that person that is constantly tearing you down, that person that treats you less than all the time? And instead of trying to find ways to get even with them, instead of just ignoring them, you actually pray for God's blessing in their life. God, I pray that you would give them more. I pray that you would reveal yourself to them. I pray that you would change their life. I pray that you would pour out your grace and your mercy in their life, that they would come to know you. Pray for God to bless them. Don't persecute them. Don't pray for them to, for bad things to happen. And I pray for their blessings. The person that is mean and unloving towards us—the one who tramples on our rights—the person that is constantly gossiping about us at work—the person that got the, the promotion that we thought we deserved—love that person. And this is not a comprehensive list. Let's be clear. This isn't a comprehensive list, there's a lot more people who would fall in that category for you it might be different, but the point of it, all the idea that Jesus is trying to, to teach us is that we're to show that same kind of selfless, agape, Jesus-like love to everyone regardless of whether they, we think they deserve it, regardless of if they earned it, regardless of if they'll ever love us back that same way, we're still called to love them. This isn't easy, but it's that righteousness that Jesus tells us is required of us. He says be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll never enter into the kingdom of heaven. I want to read one final portion of Scripture that I think really brings all of this together in Romans 12. It gives us practical instructions about living this out. Romans 12:14 through 21 says this. It says, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live at peace with everyone. Do everything that you can to live at peace with everyone. Dear friends, never... Take revenge, but leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will be heaping burning coals of shame on their heads. I love verse 21. It says, don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Would you stand with me as we close this morning? Don't let evil conquer you. Don't give in to all the evil that you see around you. Don't live just like every other person who doesn't know Christ. He says, but you conquer evil by doing good. You conquer evil by living this out. You make a difference, not by constantly talking about all the things you're against, but by focusing on the thing that you are for. We're for people coming to know Jesus. We're for people experiencing His love that radically changes them. We're for living the way that He's called us to live, even when it's difficult. This is not an easy teaching, but it's a radical teaching. And I think that was exactly Jesus' point, saying these words. Because we're called as followers of Christ to be radically different than those who do not know Jesus. So I just want you to think about it for a moment. Think about your life. Where the world is concerned with making sure their rights are not trampled. As followers of Christ, we're not supposed to be concerned as much with those things. The world is concerned with getting even when somebody hurts us. Somebody speaks evil about us. They don't extend grace and forgiveness very easily. But as followers of Christ, who've received God's grace, not when we deserve it. And not only received God's grace, but continue to receive God's grace. How many of you understand that every single day you experience God's grace in your life? Every single day you're a Father of Christ, you mess up and you fall short of God's standard. Every single one of us in this room is guilty. But when we're in Christ, not only do we see, receive His forgiveness of our sins, when we become a father of Christ, but He forgives us for our sins, past, present, and future as well. And His grace and His mercies are new everywhere. Every single day we have a new opportunity to live for Jesus. And people who've experienced that type of grace and that type of mercy are people who should be known for that type of grace and that type of mercy to other people as well so the question you just need to ask yourself today i want you to think about today is how would people define your life how would people define your life if they they look at you not simply by what you say not simply by your profile religious status on facebook but by the way that you live by the way that you walk this out, by the way that you love like Jesus, putting aside your rights at times to love like Jesus, how would people say you live your life? Would they say you're a loving person? Are you a person that is known by your love? Or if people think about you, could they tell you all the things that you're against and not the things you're for? Would you close your eyes for just a moment? Here's the thing, is it's impossible to love like this without Jesus. You don't wake up one morning and be like, you know what, I'm determined today I'm going to start loving my enemies. The only way that we can love like this, the only way that we can love our enemies is when we've experienced that radical love of Jesus who loved us when we were still His enemies. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we were righteous, not while we were worthy, but while we were dead in our sins, broken with no hope. He extended his love and his grace and his mercy into our lives. Salvation is not a gift for the good things we have done. It's grace. It's not a reward for, for how good you are, for all the spiritual stars you've got on your chart. It's a reward. It's, it's not a reward. It's a gift by God's grace. And mercy. That's it. When you've experienced that, when you've truly experienced that transforming love while we were still an enemy of God. We can't help but truly want to love other people. Everything we do should be motivated from that place of love. So maybe you're in here this morning, you're, you are a follower of Christ, but when you think about your life, you're not really, really loving. love not known by your love you love people who love you back but when it comes to sacrificially loving people like your enemy you refuse to do it you refuse to forgive you refuse to be generous you refuse to serve more than required. the action step for you today is very very simple we need to repent we need to turn When we look at God's word and it shows us something about us that's uncomfortable, and it shows us something in our lives that is not what it should be, our response is, I'm just going to take that out of God's word. I don't agree with that. That's too hard. Our response is, okay, God, this is what your word says. This is where my life is at. I don't change your word. I change me. The things that are not right in my life, I surrender to you because I want to be a person who lives lives. And your word says that they will know that I'm a follower of you by my love. Undeserved love, even to my enemies. So, if you're in here today that's not your life and you're a follower of Christ, would you take time as we close in worship today to repent, to, to surrender that anger, to surrender that bitterness, to surrender whatever it is in your life that is holding you back from loving people like Christ has called you to love? Would you surrender that to Him so that you can be who God has called you to be? If you're in here today and you do not know Christ, And I, I look back at that scripture right before we get into all these scriptures, where it constantly says, unless your righteousness exceeds out of the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And what that should show us is that it's impossible to get to God based on our own merit, but that is what is so good about the gospel. That Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. That he put aside his rights, willingly came, in living a humble life as a servant, ultimately laying down his life and death on the cross for us. And all you have to do today isn't work your way to God, isn't make right all the things you've done wrong. All you need to do today is simply open your heart to Jesus. Stop trying to get there on your own and simply accept what Jesus has done for you. Allow Him to do that spiritual heart transplant. The Bible says giving you a new heart, removing that old heart. So if you're in here today and you don't know Jesus, I want to just give us a second. You've never surrendered your heart to Jesus. If that's you today, and you say today is the day I want to surrender my heart to Jesus. I need to surrender, I need to give it to Him. I need to leave this place, not the same way I came in here, but new in Christ. If that's you today, would you just raise your hands? I'm gonna pray with you as we close today. Look around for just a moment. Anybody else today? As we close, I want you to just pray that is you, and you are giving your life to Christ today, there's no magical word to repeat. Just in your own words, give your life to God. Accept His forgiveness, receive His salvation, confess your sins to Him, knowing that He loves you in spite of the mess that you've made of your life, and He does. Again, for those of us who are followers of Christ, our challenge is to love like Jesus. So if there's any area where that is not true, true today, as we worship, surrender that to Jesus. Receive His forgiveness walk out of this place, loving me the way that he's called you to love. Father, today, Lord, we thank you for your word, even though it's not easy. Lord, it's definitely not easy to love the way you've called us to love. It's definitely not easy to, to put aside our rights to love others. It's definitely not easy to, to do that for people who are our enemies, who don't love us back. God, but that is the call of following Lord, I thank you that the only way that we can love like this is when we've experienced this love. And so I pray, God, that your love would fill our lives. For those who are here today who don't know you, I pray that your love would fill their lives in a fresh and new way today. They would leave here knowing that they're different, not because of anything they've done, but because of what you've done for them. For those of us who are followers of you who are living, are supposed to be living as citizens of your kingdom, God, would our lives be known to be different? Would we look different than those who are in this world? Would we be known as people who love sacrificially like you, Jesus? God, we thank you. We thank you for all that you're doing in our lives and all you're going to continue to do in our lives. We give you all the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Jesus' name,